Welcome to the Boundless Book Club, the podcast from the Emirates Literature Foundation, where we talk about the books that are too good to keep to ourselves. You are here with Andrea, Ahlam, and me, Annabelle. And we are excited to introduce our special guest today, Saeed Saeed, who is the arts and culture features writer for The National. You can check out his stories and much more at www.thenational.ae. Saeed, we're so happy to see you today. An absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So while we always like chatting with Saeed, we have invited him today in particular because of all the great creative people that he gets to meet and interview from all around the Arab world. And because today we are talking about the voices from the Middle East that we want everyone to know about. There are so many though, and this is just a small selection, so we will definitely have to revisit this topic. If you have any suggestions, you can let us know on social media, or you can send us an email at comms at emiratesletfest.com. Did you find it difficult to choose one book to talk about today? You know, especially now, especially like now in this current time, you know, you, you know, I mean, a lot of book lovers are even reading more than what they normally are. So trying to find a book to kind of, I guess, just kind of, I guess, encapsulate some of the best things I've been reading for the last few months have been difficult. And this is why I took the shortcut and went for an anthology. <laughs> so yeah good choice so, you know, so, yeah yeah so I came to you with the greatest hits package and that's the um, <laughs> yeah and that's the Baghdad Noir um, anthology um, which I think is a superb read and, a, and an underrated gem that deserves to be um, highlighted that sounds great it's a great cheat as well to choose an anthology <laughs> yeah and also and also look I mean the thing a lot I just kind of feel generally that I don't think anthologies are kind of given the respect that it deserves, right? A lot of the times yeah. we kind of feel mm -hmm. that anthology for some reason is a less superior piece of work to a novel. And I think just that I think people kind of view anthologies as a bit of a ragtag, let's kind of put it together and just put it out by Christmas and you know, but it's not really the case mm -hmm. because I mean, a really good anthology, if it's curated well, it is supposed to take you, and I hate, I don't like the word, it's very cliche, but in this situation, it applies a journey, you know, into a particular um, subject, into a particular time. So I think, I think and, you know, anthologies, you know, should get the respect that it deserves. Unlike a novel where, you know, the reader is having a conversation with, with one author and there's that conversation going on, a good anthology is having, you know, multiple conversations, not just with the reader each time you read a different story, but they're all talking to each other as well. Look, I mean, absolutely. I mean, like, you know, anthologies in a way is, is almost similar to just being part in a great dinner conversation. Because like, you know, because, you know, because mm -hmm. you're talking about, you talk about one particular topic but it just, it just is discussed from many different perspectives, many different angles. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it could be historical, it could be social, it could be geographical. So I think in a way, an anthology, if done well, it can give you a greater insight into a topic than perhaps, you know, an epic book can. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it also gives you, if it's something that you're interested in, it gives you so many more things to follow up with, which yeah. is wonderful. If you, if you kind of, if you have an interest in, in writers from a particular region, but you don't know a lot about them, then that's perfect. And then suddenly you have 10 authors that you can follow for their entire career. Absolutely. And follows actually in a way it can kind of work as both a stepping stone, you know, into a particular topic. Like for example, you know, because we've all been at home for a while, I've been binging on a lot of television shows regarding the Roman empire. So I just mm -hmm. the other day, um, I, the other day from, um, from Amazon, 
I got a, I got an anthology looking at you know the 12 different Roman um, Roman Caesars, Roman Empire um, leaders over the last century. I mean that's a great way to get to kind of get into this topic and then kind of moving on. And also in, and also in another way, um, as well as being a stepping stone, an anthology can also be a valuable reference point. Mm-hmm. You know, in term, as a journalist as well, it kind of gives me you know 10 different people to kind of chase to get you know to get that interview to have that discussion tell us about the Baghdad noir yeah well i mean i guess for me it um it all started with an email i mean only you get so many emails you know about books you kind of skim through them right and then you kind of say okay i'll, get, I'll flag that and i'll get back to that you know in a couple of days later but in this one um so the book that we're discussing today is Baghdad noir Baghdad noir it's an anthology of short crime fiction stories, you know, written by um, written by novelists, not all from Iraq, but but all of the stories are based, you know, in Iraq. And for me, mm-hmm. I thought that was really really interesting because um, consider you know considering you know, Iraq you know, you know has been you know for better or worse as well you know in, in the news over the last two decades, but more importantly, this idea of Arabic crime fiction. Right, yeah. which hasn't, you know, like I mean, Arabic, I mean, Arabic crime fiction hasn't, you know, really taken off per se. It's not. It's still kind of viewed in a way as a bit of a as as a bit of a boutique interest, you know, in Arabic mm-hmm. literary circles. And so I just kind of I think this book, you know, the fact that it's kind of published in English, translated in English, I think it's really really important. I think this is a kind of book that's gonna be looked upon, you know, as a valuable. Um, reference point, you know, um, into mm-hmm. this field. So, are all the authors in the book Arabs um, and written in Arabic? No. Okay. So, from the twelve or thirteen authors that are in there, two are um, um, not Iraqi. The rest, okay, you know, are Iraqi. Okay. All all of these book. I mean, I mean the, the the Baghdad Noir collection is all published in English. Some of them, mm-hmm. some of them were written. Um, in, in, in the first language, English, while majority of them has been translated from Arabic to English. Okay. And, and who are some of the names that, some of the names of, of the authors who have written in this anthology? Can you tell us some of the yeah, names? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, look, I mean, I think, you know, the biggest, when it comes to the biggest name, the marketing, you know, is Ahmed Saadawi. You know, um, yeah. who we all know, of course. you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, we all know um, the Frankstein, uh, for the for Frankstein of Baghdad. If, if, if not mistaken. Yeah. So he's like, he leads, you know, the kind of the charge. Mm-hmm. And, but, you know, but other writers as well, you know, we have Salima Saleh, um, we have Mohammed mm-hmm. um, Alwan Jabir, we had Mahmoud, um, Mahmoud Ahmed Al Sayyid, and we also have um, as well um, Abdul Ma- and also Abdul Malik Al Nuri. So there's really interesting kind of uh, people there. Again, it's not really about how important these authors are. Mm-hmm. Some of them, you know, they're just known for writing, you know, short Arabic. Um, short Arabic fiction, you know, little pieces, but it all, but what's interesting here is about how it kind of vividly captures, you know, some of the nuances, you know, the gritty aspects of life uh, in Iraq from Baghdad, you know, to Mosul, to Basra and beyond. Are they similar, these stories, when you read them, do they feel like they have anything more in common other than the setting? I mean, and that's the really interesting thing, right, about, I guess, short stories, number one, and crime fiction. Right, because I mean, these are all genre pieces. Like, mm-hmm. it's not. I mean, a lot of these authors kind of respect the parameters, you know, you know, that comes, mm. you know, 
with writing short crime fiction. So there is straight away, you know, the setup, there is the investigation, and then of course, and, and you know, and there's a conclusion towards it. So in that sense, a lot of these authors yeah. are kind of following what we um, expect as crime fiction um, readers. So I yeah. think, you know, the thrill, I mean, part of the thrill, of course, is, you know, how these, you know, how these tightly coiled plots kind of unwind. Yeah. And how they kind of... Yeah. Um, some of them surprisingly, some of them not. Yeah. But I think some of the joys, um, you know, in you know, in this book is the is that you know is that kind of intimate look into everyday yeah. life in Baghdad. So we're talking about mm-hmm. you know the relationships between. Yeah. Like one thing that comes strongly here is the importance, you know, of the shara, the importance of the street, mm-hmm. your neighborhood is essentially you know your universe right you know your yeah. building the building where you live is very important your neighbor can be your best friend or your mortal enemy so it kind of yeah. shows you the importance you know in iraqi culture um of you know the, the importance you know of um of social interaction you know the deep bond mm-hmm. that people have with family friends and neighbors which i think is really interesting um and, an interesting insight um, into this book. I just, I wanted to ask Saeed, because unfortunately in recent times, when I think about literature coming from Baghdad, from Syria, from Palestine, I immediately, my mind goes to a war zone. And mm. I want to know if the, 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 are the settings of, of the stories that, that are in Baghdad Noir, does it kind of show you a, a pre-war Baghdad or like a normal setting of, of Baghdad when it was before before the instability and before the the situation where it is today and how it's reflected in today's literature? So is it more of like a domestic crime, if you can call it that, rather than a war zone? Look, I mean, most of, like most of the novels, I mean, most of these short stories are set you know in the here and now yeah yep. so you know you know the echoes of war is mm-hmm. you know is there but present in the stories yeah but the, mm. uh, it's interesting that you kind of mentioned um you know that question because the best piece of writing and this is absolutely no um disrespect to all of the authors that are yeah. corralled, that are corralled together you know for this is the introductory essay by the editor um, the curator of this piece, the wonderful um, Iraqi novelist Sam, um, Samuel Shimon. Mm-hmm. There's an amazing essay at the start of this book. Um, it's called the Garden of It's called the Garden of Justice, City of Peace. And what he does is basically sets the scene, you know, into how mm-hmm. I guess the Iraqi crime novel came to be. And you know what? In that essay, Shimon kind of paints a picture first of a multi-ethnic pluralistic Baghdad from the advent of the British invasion to the Ottoman Empire. And it talks about, you know, how that was kind of, that kind of laid the seeds, I guess, to the open-mindedness to come in Baghdad. And then he kind of, then he describes, you know, the American, what he calls the American invasion of Baghdad of Iraq in April 2003, and how from all of that, all of that upheaval came, you know, the Iraqi novel, you know, the Iraqi crime Mm -hmm. fiction novel. It's almost kind of a response you know, to some of the tragic carnage and, you know, and the disruption that happened there. So I think in terms of the discussion of Iraq pre-war, that can, that can mostly be found in that introductory essay, you know, where Shimon goes to, goes to great pains to say that Iraq 
isn't what you see it isn't what you see today it was actually a yeah. mul- it's a very you know pluralistic multi-ethnic open-minded society and it mm-hmm. is from there that he provides the context for the uh, for the preceding stories. Wonderful, sounds great. And in terms of the what the Halam is saying as well, in terms of the um, the context of a lot of these stories. I mean, look, I mean, the, the, the tragic situation aside, you know, in Baghdad, it's fertile place for crime novels for a plot. You know, there's a lot of mm-hmm. great. There's a lot of material there, you know, that an author, you know, can speak to. And also different styles. Salima Saleh, she writes a story called The Apartment. And that kind of adopts almost like a classic whodunit, you know, Agatha Christie um, type of situation. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, where, you know, where you have like, you know, you know, a wary cop, you know, from, you know, from a Baghdad district, um, police district. You know, he kind of comes in doing, to investigate the death of an elderly lady. You know, you know, at home, you know, it's kind of interviewing like, you know, all the neighbors. It's kind of quirky, you know, yet interesting. While, for example, on the other side, you have uh, Muhammad Alwan Jabbers. Um, he, had a, he wrote a book, his piece was called Room 22. And that um, talks about some of the violent kidnappings, you know, that we hear on the news of political activists, of just anyone on the street. So he uses that as the plot. Okay, who abducted this person? Right. So, yeah, so in a way, so, so, so the authors sometimes use some of the things that we see on the news, while on the other hand, some of the authors kind of, you know, take a more kind of um, interesting, quirky and traditional look towards their crime short stories. That's really interesting, because when you when you said that you chose a crime anthology, that was like one of the first things that went through my mind was crime is such a big genre and you can have cozy crime you can have your like you know your murder mysteries and then you can have your really dark graphic um some of like the scandi noir stuff that we were talking about on an earlier show yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and and that's and some of those books particularly the graphic ones for me after you finish an entire novel length story in that style it can be a bit much so mm-hmm. <laughs> something like an anthology is is really good at giving you a stylistic break i think sometimes interesting as well because because what Baghdad Noir does it kind of functions like on, on a number of levels right because I mean it's not like reading you know a crime fiction you know a, you know, a crime fiction anthology based you know in the UK in Australia or in the States where you kind of know the setting already so mm-hmm. in a way it's almost kind of like a very very dark travelogue into these neighborhoods that we don't even know about and I think yeah, uh, yeah so as well as giving you know, really, as well as giving you, you know, you know, your crime thrills as a crime fiction buff, it kind of gives you as well little, you know, intimate mm-hmm. snapshots. Which is a huge part of the enjoyment, I think. I mean, when you look at Netflix today and, and you have shows from all over the world, it's giving the viewer options. It's not what it used to be where, you know, certain parts of the world sort of dictates what you watch or we get our entertainment from certain parts of the world. And today, you're literally, the world is open in terms of you choose what you want to watch and what you want to consume. And it's amazing to see that in literature as well. Yeah, and, I, and absolutely. Look, And maybe there's another piece in that. I mean, you know, is this part of this kind of, is this part of the Netflix effects? You know what I mean? In the sense mm-hmm. that, you know, where Netflix and or just basically streaming services have kind of opened up um, our minds 
you know, to eclectic content. I mean, we're living in an age now sure. where we're, we're living in so an true. age now where subtitles isn't a problem. Like 15 years ago, subtitles, like, what are you doing? Are you reading a book or watching television? Like now, sure. subtitles is so, in a way, I kind of do see this kind of ricochet effect. This, you know, that is kind of coming mm -hmm. on, you know, to fiction. So I think in a way, this book is well-placed um, you know, to be published. And the best thing about this, going back to this idea, you know, about the dark and some of the gory details of crime fiction, the best thing about this, and for me personally, is thank God there's no CSI type of plot. I'm so sick of, <laughs> I'm, I'm so sick of seeing, I'm so sick of seeing doctors in lab coats um, solving cases. They should be in the lab <laughs> long, you know what I mean? Like, you know, thank, you know, thank, look, it's just a guy with the guy or girl with this pen and his notepad, no scalpel, no nothing. This is what I enjoy about this piece is just like proper investigation. Yeah. And not some young millennial coming in there, you know, tweeting is, you know, so, so for me, this kind of makes me personally extremely happy. Said, <laughs> <laughs> how do you feel about the journalist investigating the crime and solving it? <laughs> if look, if the journalist is just hanging out with a cop, it's cool. But if it's like diagnosis murder, you know, <laughs> where you know, you know, where you get an elderly GP running around, you know, you know, it's just like that's that's just that's just not on. Hey, not on. I used to really love diagnosis murder. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Um, I mean, look, diagnosis where that kind of reminds you of the unemployment days, you know, when you're kind of a 12 <laughs> having ice cream and you're wondering what are you doing with your life? <laughs> so, yeah. yes. and, and on that note, I would like to know which book you chose, Achlam, because I think that was um, a more of a, a book that you need more time for. Is that right? Perhaps if you are on the sofa having your ice cream. I have to admit, I have a little bit of a girl crush on this author because I keep talking about her on and on. But Buthena Leisa is, is the author that I want to talk about. And uh, actually, Buthena is, is really special to me personally because when I first started to work with the Emirates Literature Foundation, I, I just joined to work on a small project. And at that time, I went to Kuwait on a business trip. And I was, I was there sort of trying to reach young people, uh, attracting more youth to the Emirates Literature uh, Festival. And I met a couple of key, uh, you know, authors or literary personalities in Kuwait to try to go through them to reach their communities. And Buthena is one of the people that I met there. So she's an author, but she studied medicine and she switched because she's just always loved literature. And at some point she just, you know, she, she couldn't do anything else. And she's such an incredible, powerful voice in the literary scene in Kuwait. She was even one of the key people pushing for uh, changing the laws on censorship in Kuwait, which just changed on, on the 25th of August, where, you know, there was about 5,000 books banned in Kuwait, and, and then the parliament just voted to, to loose, loosen those, uh, those laws and allowing publishers to publish books as they wish, sending just a list of names and authors, and they would only look into a ban of a book if there is a public complaint, and then it's only the court that can rule now on whether a book is banned or not. So it's a huge change. And She's been speaking out about this for, um, you know, uh, over a year now, and, and she's an amazing voice in Arab literature. But she also has this really cool bookshop in Kuwait called Tequeen, where every single person who works in the bookshop just has so much insight, and the books are 
curated uh, in that, you know, when you, when you go in there and you're like, what are you looking for? They'll be like, no, no, that's not for you. Don't take that book, take this or take that. And, and there, it's just such a personal experience. And the conversations that I had with Buthena herself on that trip actually made me feel like, oh my God, I love this industry. And I just want to work in this industry forever. So she's, she's been really influential on me personally, but the book, that I love of hers is in Arabic. It, unfortunately, it's not been translated. Another book of hers has been translated, which I'll tell you guys about. But means, I guess, um, maps of loss, if you were to literally translate that. And it's a story of uh, a young Kuwaiti couple who have a five-year-old son, and they go to Hajj uh, one year. They take their son with them, and then their son is lost in Hajj. Uh, <gasps> amongst like millions of, of, uh, of people and the experience that they go through um, after losing their son and the journey and what that does to their relationship, what that does to their faith, what that does to their mental states individually. You know, they're on this journey together, but both of them have very different approaches of dealing with the situation. And the journey of the little boy, it's just, it's, it's, it's horrific, uh, but just, it, it's the kind of book that you just can't put down and so well-written and so powerful. And there's so much, um, although it's obviously it's fiction, but there is a lot of research that's gone into this book and you can tell that, you know, it's, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot to think about in terms of what they go through, but it's an amazing book. I really, really do hope it gets translated very soon. I think there have been translators who have been wanting to do that, but Bethany just wants the right, <laughs> right person to do it because the story is absolutely incredible. Uh, can I yeah. ask, how long is he lost for? Is he lost the entire throughout the book for a while? This, yeah. I'm having I'm having palpitations he's, here. He's lost for a while, and and there's this the boy has a journey as well. So it's not like <laughs> it's not like a momentary thing where it gets resolved. It's a it's a journey. It's a book long journey. So it's 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 horrific from every every perspective, but but also so interesting to just follow and see where things go and uh, what it does to to every person involved, especially the parents. Uh, but the book of hers that has been translated is Kabartunasetu and Ansa, which in English I think is called uh, All That I Want to Forget. And uh, it's the story of a girl called Fatma who loves poetry and loves uh, French literature. And that's what she wants to pursue. But she has a very conservative brother who thinks that the right path for her is something totally different. Um, and so she's <clears throat> kind of stuck under pressure of living under her brother's roof. And then she meets a man who has similar interests to her and loves poetry as well. But then she's sort of married off to someone uh, different by her brother, who isn't quite as much of a tyrant as her brother is, but still he's not what someone she chose and he's not what she's looking for. Um, and it's an interesting story of what Fatima goes through as well. But, it, you know, it's a great start for someone who doesn't, hasn't read any Bethena, any of Bethena's work. And then hopefully gets translated very soon because this is an amazing book. I, I gift it to a lot of people. <laughs> And Ahlam, you know, I was looking at, look, I'm just wondering, right? Yeah. I mean, covering, you know, the Arabic literary scene, I guess, for 
eight years, particularly like, you know, the awards, right? Um, you know, mm. like what, I, what I've always found with books um, from Kuwait yeah. is that a lot of the, um, a lot of the, a lot of the plots cover kind of hot button social topics mm-hmm. right you know yeah. why you know i mean we're generalizing here I'm, I'm so i'm trying to be careful like where i kind of find you know particularly covering the international price arabic fiction right for the last 10 years i mean you find mm-hmm. a lot of works kind of exploring politics exploring history but i just find with kuwaiti authors they've been really kind of interested in you know in the like the nuances of relationships, you know, between mother and father, father and daughter. True. Is, that, is that something that, is that something as well that, that you kind of see from Kuwaiti authors? Like, you know, Saud al-Sanusi, we saw that. Yeah. You know, and you kind of see that also as well? I think you see that from any, um, any society where literature and arts and culture is strong. Mm. And I think in Kuwait in particular, it's very, very strong. The literary scene there, there is a literary event every single day, multiple, you know, in small groups. And, and, and it's just such a rich literary culture. And I think any culture that has that many authors, that many artists, you know, relationships and family dynamics and, you know, relationship dynamics and human, the human contact it's it's where sort of art art is formed. A lot of art is formed uh, all over the world. So I think Kuwait it comes from that angle. The fact that there's so, such a rich arts and culture scene. Yeah, I, yeah, you're right. Because because I, I think in a way what what Kuwait does it kind of shows that what what they have done not just in the literary scene but the whole art scene in Kuwait is that it kind mm-hmm. of shows that it it showed people there that you know art art and life go hand in hand. You know, you can use art Absolutely. to discuss. Mm-hmm. While I guess for me, what I found, for example, you know, in other societies, you know, in the Arab world, you know, the idea of fiction is still kind of viewed as an academic pursuit. Like, oh, you fi- yeah. or you're, oh you're a novelist, Yani. Okay, you like, you know, then this is a very big thing. Well, so you have to, you know, so, you know, you have to write about something important, you know, whatever quote yeah. unquote important is. So I think that's really interesting yeah. what you're saying, yes. Mm. When, whenever we're in the office, Ahlam, you always mention this is a great book. You know, I can't wait till it's translated into English. <laughs> and so there's this like long list of books that I can't read yet, and it's very frustrating. But what's the what's the book say that always does that to you, where you're like, I really wish this were available in translation for a wider audience. Like, what's the book that you can't wait to be translated? The thing is, for me, I think like like honestly, because. The work that I've been doing here for the last, like, you know, eight years, a lot of the time, you know, I interact now more than ever, I interact, you know, with Arabic text, you know, as soon as it's translated into English, because that actually means a story. I mean, and that's the thing, because, like, for me, it's like, it's always hard. I I mean, I guess the the frustrating part about the, um, the job that I do is that it's really hard to write about um, is about about a great Arabic novel that has not been translated into English. I mean, sometimes you know we kind of do you know, in a, you know if it wins the Najib Mahfouz Prize or the International Prize for Arabic Fiction, yes, that's fine. But it's because always it's always that balance right between letting the readers know you know that this is a great book. But at the same time, it's tough because they, because a lot of it's a lot of the, you know, a lot of readers can't read it. 
It's almost like telling somebody, this is a great party, yeah. but you're not invited. <laughs> you know? So, yeah. So. That's how it feels. <laughs> well, except, except we have a platform here and we, there might be some translators watching us and they might actually come and pick it up. So <laughs> speak up. <laughs> yeah, you know, but, you know, but that's happening. Like, you know, you're seeing now a lot, like you're seeing a lot of, you're seeing a lot more interest, you know, coming, you know, when it comes to Arabic books mm. and not just even translation, you know, and Ahlam, you know more of this than anyone, but, you know, it's not just translations, you know, like, you know, into the, the, the primary languages of, you know, of, of English, you know, um, French, German, you're seeing, you know, Brazil, you're seeing, you know, in, like, you know, Portuguese, you're seeing um, Chinese. So I think you're seeing like more Arabic um, um, texts, you know, spreading much, much widely at a, at a rapid pace. So I know that Annabelle, today you're going to be talking about a book that's been on my reading list for ages. And, um, mm. It's been translated to English, which is how you know about it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm going to be talking about Azazil by Yusuf Ziadan. And I actually specifically went looking for about a week for something to read new for this podcast, because I think when I was looking through the books that I'd already read, most of them were about war mm-hmm. or were, I think, from the perspective of multiple generations of women. And so I was familiar with kind of that point of view and I wanted to move away from that. I wanted to find something that was a completely different perspective. And I found the perspective of a monk in the fifth century AD. And I thought, okay, well that's far enough removed from most things that I've read recently. Let's give that a go. And if you look at my bookshelf here, you I've got things like Horns by Joe Hill. I've got many uh, Lucifer comics as well. So the the idea of a story, which is, it's got such a strong conceit, which is this this monk is kind of visited by Azazel or Satan and compelled to kind of confess his memoirs just seemed like the perfect book to me. And it was a roller coaster of a ride because I started this book and you know what? It was actually really, really boring. It was, it was not, it was not what it promised me on, in the marketing material, but then it ended up, it was a real slow burn. And then by the time it picked up, I was completely hooked and I absolutely love it now. But the way it's framed is you're, you're met not with like a great hook of a first line. Mm -hmm. It starts with a note from the translator. So the translator says kind of, I've passed away now. And so now I'm allowing this to be published. And he explains that the, in these archeological ruins, the 30 scrolls from this monk, his memoir have been discovered and he has translated them and he's sharing them with the world now. Is that right? Has a translator passed away? No. So I think that the whole, um, it was translated by Jonathan Wright, but the translator's note is part of the story. And that's the kind of conceit of the novel and the way it starts is with a translator's note. And I've thought about this quite a bit because I would much rather have cut the first like two chapters. And I think it would have been stronger plot wise. But if you think back in hindsight, it, it actually, it doesn't really, it doesn't really work. It definitely feels more like a authentic historical document, which kind of adds power to the whole story by it starting more slowly, by it starting as a kind of historic document. Yeah. And it reminded me a lot in the beginning, if, if anybody's, you know, read Dracula, where it's all written in the first person. So there is a sense of immediacy there where you're constantly with this monk as he's living his life. And there's all this foreshadowing. So you're 
meeting him in the present moment where he's talking to his monk mates um, mm. and hanging about with them. And he's always talking about how he couldn't bear to talk about what happened in Alexandria or what happened then. So there's all this foreshadowing happening, but there's no there's no real conflict in the beginning, which I think holds you back as a reader. And yeah. you're constant. Um, I like personally, I was just. I think I'm so used to very specific formulaic narrative structure I, I don't know where and, and it kind of threw me that there was no real conflict and it was just constantly hinting at something is to come something is to come and like we'll get to it <laughs> <laughs> but then when he he finally goes to um Alexandria and he's disguised as a peasant he's not got his monk robes on and he kind of in that city he succumbs to temptation you know there's a beautiful woman dot 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 and he's kind of wrestling with that from the point of view of his faith but then there's all this frustration and tension between different religious sects as well. And so this book is just phenomenal in that the monk character of Hyper is like this blank canvas and you're seeing the fifth century AD and all of its historical religious tensions through his eyes. And it's incredibly interesting if you're, if you're interested in the history of the period, if you're interested in the history of the church and things like that, it's, it's a really great book to read. I had a bit of a girl crush moment myself when he meets Hypatia, who's this famous astronomer, mathematician, philosopher. And when he meets her and she go and he goes to one of her lectures, it's it's just amazing. And that kind of made the whole novel for me. I thought, right, I give this five stars now because he's met Hypatia and he's fangirling over her the same way that I would fangirl over her. <laughs> um, which is which is brilliant. So you get to meet all of these figures from history, which it gives me a little bit of a thrill. But then again, I'm also the kind of person who, like if, if you're familiar with Assassin's Creed, there's a, there's a version of that video game called Odyssey where you, as you're you know fighting and you're going on your quest, you get to meet people like Socrates and that. And there's a little bit of, oh, the Socrates. <laughs> How fun. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's a really, it is That's an utterly cool. absorbing read as the spectator says, but it takes a while to get going, but it's worth it in the end. I think I'm going to I'm going to read the Arabic and then we're going to sit and compare and see. Yeah, if... let's do that. <laughs> I mean, Annabelle, I remember I read that book a couple of years ago and I kind of felt something similar. But then I remember a person, a, 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 a book friend of mine said, when I, when, when, I, when, I, when, I, when I shared with them some of the same misgivings, like the book is a little like it's, it's a bit tough going in the beginning, you know, yeah. yeah um, he said that the way that he viewed it is that that style kind of matched, you know, the unfussed, you know, the simplicity of the monk's personality. Yeah. So in a way, mm. once he kind of said that to me, once he said that to me, I kind of like reappraised it because I thought, because I thought, come on, get on with it. But then I thought maybe what, what that style was showing is that, you know, this, the way he was writing it was almost kind of to the rhythm you know, of the monks. Yeah. Kind of, mm. what, what, that is, makes sense. Is yeah. that true? How do you feel about that? Yeah, no, that, that's exactly. So when I mentioned that it felt more authentic when I thought about it, that's, that's exactly why. It's because it's not going to be Mission Impossible if the characters are monk, you know. Monk, they're not, you know, renowned for being the most kind of exciting lives, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> it's very it's very straightforward. It's very sparse, I would say. But that's one of the things I really liked about the style of the book. The more I got into the story and the more that gradually developed was the language is not unnecessarily flowery at all. He just mm. talks about who he meets, how he meets them, 
And for me, that was just enough because that's something that I personally don't like too much. I don't like very lyrical language. Um, and so I really was grateful for that by the end of it, that, that yeah. it was simple. For anyone who might want to pick this book up, Mm. What? How much of the? How much of the book would you say it's a slow, but slow start? What? What should a reader expect? Page when he goes to Alexandria, basically, is when things really start getting interesting. So I think page fifty, fifty pages, which is standard. You give you give a book fifty pages before you decide if you want to move on or I think should I stay or should I go? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it was worth it, you know, it, yeah. we were talking about this before, that not every book is meant to be the Da Vinci Code in terms of plot. <laughs> yeah. That's why, yeah. that's why there, are, there, are, there are different books. And we're very thankful. <laughs> but the thing is, we, you know, in our team, like, and, and, and Saeed, you too, I mean, our jobs require us to read a lot. And so when something is not immediately gripping, we're kind of becoming, you know, we're like, yeah. okay, I've got so, I've got a pile that big. So, I mean, I've got piles <laughs> that yep. we need to go through all the time. So it's like, when it's not immediately gripping, we're a little bit becoming less, less patient, I think, in our team. Definitely. I have moved from the 50 pages to 75 pages now. You know, because I felt, because mm, okay. mm-hmm. I mean, because I, because I felt a little bit guilty, you know, after 50 pages, you know, so yeah, but, yeah. Uh, yeah, but after 75, it's like, look, we should, we should see other people. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> life, life is too short for that. <laughs> yeah. I like you, but inshallah next time, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it is, it's like dating. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> but, but you know what, oh, though, uh, just the thing about that book, I think it's very important to give, um, to give a shout out, you know, to Jonathan Wright. You know, yeah. the translator, because, yes. you know, he is like, you know, if you are reading translated books, Arabic books, that name, you know, he pops up everywhere. You know, yeah, he, absolutely. this gentleman did, you know, Frank Sta- Frankenstein in Baghdad, Sa'ad al-Sanusi, the bamboo stalk, um, as, as well as Azazil. So, I mean, he's like, he's almost becoming like now the premier translator, yeah. you know, in terms of the Arab, yeah. you know, in terms of the Arabic. And I think, you know, he's a person... Which, which, you know, which I really plan to interview because I think what he has given us, you know, you know, to, um, is so much from behind Absolutely. the scenes. He's one of the reasons I actually bought this. Absolutely. Yeah. It's an art to what he does. Definitely. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing, like Annabelle, you're saying he's one of the reasons you picked this up and, and non-Arabic speakers or English speakers who want to familiarize with themselves with Arabic literature. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to search who's the best translators, right? And then look at what titles they've, they've worked on. So him and Marilyn Booth and names like that, they're becoming known for picking up these gems that become award winners and globally recognized. So they're doing a huge service to the Arab world for sure, but from a marketing standpoint as well. And the thing is like with Marilyn Booth and Jonathan as well, like a lot of the interesting thing about translators, which which really kind of uh, fascinates me is from what, like, you know, from what angle they approach their craft, like, you know, some of, some of them approach it through, you know, a pure, like, you know, an academic sense where they kind of understand, you know, you know, the nuances, you know, the little ticks of the Arabic language, while Jonathan comes, um, comes from a journalistic background. You know, so he understands, so he, you know, he was a former, I mean, he was a former Cairo bureau chief. So he kind of understands the heft of the word because sometimes translators, they try to overcompensate. So Mm -hmm. what Jonathan does is very kind of his, his translations are very stripped back, you know, like, yeah. uh, yeah, yeah. And I think it's, he almost has his kind of own style. 
of translation, but you have to be like super geeky to kind of really get into that. So yeah, yeah he's really interesting. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah, I really like that. So, and Andrew, when you were looking for books, were you focused on kind of who the translator was? Is, is yours in translation? What have you got? No, so so it was hard to choose one, but then I just went through my bookshelves as you do and picked up something I hadn't read for a really long time. So from, we've all had very different books and this is taking us across the Gulf um, and back to the 1990s. This is a book called Embroideries by Marjan Satrapi, mm-hmm. who is um, really well known for her autobiographical book Persepolis which is a graphic novel and it was made into a movie that was really great. And this is of the same world, but, um, but a completely different scenario and different type of story in that this, this story starts, it, it's at a very comfortable home in Tehran. And the story starts when the men leave the room after dinner, which is a perfect start to this story, which is about women. Um, I think you mentioned, you know, multi-generational women. It, it, it's wonderful. It's um, the women, uh, it's about, it's Marjan herself. It's her mom, it's her grandmother and um, neighbors, friends, and they all kind of gather around a samovar to partake in their favorite activity, which is gossip. And uh, and the granny, the grandmother, is just like such a star. I wonder if she was alive when this was written. I wonder how she thought of herself, <laughs> her, the portrayal of her in this, because it's just, it's amazing. One of the, one of the stories that Marshan tells is how her grandmother is, um, is an opium addict. So she starts off the morning being really, really grumpy and vile to everybody. And then as the day progresses and she takes her little medicine, um, she becomes very charming. And, and then obviously when this story takes place, she is very, very charming. Uh, she tells Marjan when Marjan was younger, she says, Marjan, your eyes are too wide open. When I was younger, I would just take a little tiny bit of opium and my, my <laughs> eyelids would get droopy and it would make me more attractive to men. And she recommends this to her granddaughter. It's just, it's, and that is one of the that's one of the <laughs> only stories from this book that I can retell because it's actually quite scandalous because it's all these women sitting around. <laughs> this is in the days before before Buys the internet. Now just looking in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the nineties yeah. in Iran. They didn't have the internet. They couldn't. They you know they didn't have sex education. This was where it happened. It was behind closed doors when the men had left the room for a nap, and the stories that they're sharing in this book is they're they're scandalous they are really deeply personal they are um absolutely heartbreaking and hilarious it's just I was so delighted to read this book again because it's so so funny um the granny refers to refers to gossiping about others as to speak behind others' backs as a ventilator of the heart, which makes it seem much nicer than what it really is. Perspective. Um, it's all about perspective. It's all about perspective. And like we've said many times, I would love to be in the room when this conversation, these conversations yeah. are happening. Although if this is if this was my mum, my granny, like my family, I would be mortified. 
I would be <laughs> blushing the entire time. But that, I feel like that's such a typical Middle Eastern setting in that, you know, once the men re- leave, that's when the conversation yeah. gets interesting, right? That's when, that's when you know, it, everything is unleashed. It's like, Saeed leaves the chat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I mean, however, look, may I, look, may I just say, right? The thing about the men leaving, right? I mean, I guess the biggest misconception, you know, they, you know, that that I, that people kind of feel is that when the men leave, or like when they go to hang out at the coffee shop, you know, all we're talking about is like sports or whatever. <laughs> no, we are just, no, we are just as bad. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like we talk about, you know, like you know, marriage family when are you getting married you know what bro you put some garlic on your head your hair will grow back you know all this kind of you know all this kind of weird things so you know you know we do things kind of like in our own way i guess it's that it's like that it's like that that curtain between men and women in middle eastern culture right where you've got to sort of hold yourself back in a setting where there's men and women but as soon as we're like separated that that's when you're <laughs> you sort of unleash and it all comes out and you're sort of your more authentic self and more comfortable to talk about certain topics that you do you just don't do it in the presence of the opposite sex yeah there's also the the when when you live in a society where you don't have the i guess when you don't have the internet you, you have no one to ask is this normal and it bottle it, it kind of just grows inside you until you are at a stage where you're gonna you're gonna have to talk to someone or you'll explode. And I think that's what happens in this. You really have to get it. It's 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 wonderful. And then it's it ends. It, I've just got to show you. It's got like these beautiful illustrations. This is this is when he's kind of leaving the room, talking about. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's got pictures in it. It's all, it's a graphic novel. Oh, it's, amazing. It's all pictures. Sold. And uh, I, yeah. <laughs> so Marjan actually writes in English, right? So it's not she translated. So she, uh, so she grew up in Iran and then left for France. So she writes uh, a lot in French, which is oh, translated wow. from French to English. And I think, I think Persepolis was written originally the screenplay was written in French originally because she was thinking about how their voices were going to sound reading the reading the lines mm-hmm. on video and, and she didn't want the, it to be translated. Yeah. We had Marjan at the Emirates Festival of Literature, I think, in the early days. Um, yeah. I can't remember if it was the first or second year of the festival, but she she came. She's incredible. What's the rule? I mean, not there's a rule, like, because I mean, because I think about this as well. What what is a good time frame to go back to your bookshelf and revisit a book? Is it a case when is it a case is the best time to revisit a book that you read is when you totally forgot the plot? Like like for you, Andrea, like you know, like like when do you decide? Because for me, I kind of feel if I know the story already or how it's gonna end. I kind of say, well, you know what? I still know you. I need to forget about you for a couple more years. I'll <laughs> go back. So, like, so for you, like, you know, what makes you kind of go back? Um, well, doing this podcast is a good reason to revisit <laughs> a lot of books. But I think it depends on why you're revisiting them. One of the books I've read the most times in my entire life um, is the, a book by Philip Pullman, which I read as a like really, really young age, and reading that again I can pick it up and read like a couple of chapters and it just brings me back and it's a bit like going to visit your parents it's just has that oh, okay. lovely feeling of familiarity yeah. so I don't need to forget that 
Um, whereas some other books, I think I'd pick them up when I don't really remember what happens, maybe. Yeah, see, I never done that. Yeah. I never done that going back to kind of revisit. I'm going to try that actually. That's a good call. So I always underline the the parts of a book where it really resonates with me. So I have lines all over all throughout the book. So for me when I go back to an old book that I I just kind of want to see those parts that I loved it's really easy to see. I just skim through and read those lines. I've I've never actually reread an entire book twice. Yeah, no. I I don't think I've done that either. Like I'll go back partic- particularly with children's books of Philip Pullman, um, Harry Potter as well. I remember there was uh, the only time I think I've reread books in their entirety was purely, um, it was when I was doing my A-level exams and everything was incredibly stressful and all I wanted was something cozy and familiar that I knew and I reread the entire Harry Potter series. Did I have the time to do that? Absolutely not. Did I do it anyway? Yes, I did. But that's a great excuse. I mean, sometimes when you just want something where you know what's going to happen in the end, you want that feeling of familiarity that's a great yeah to go back to a movie or a book that you love yeah but for the for the most part I don't especially with, with grown-up novels if I'm not I'm not like there's so many other books to read that I get anxious yeah yeah, true. yeah. why am I still reading this let's move on same. <laughs> same but that said I think I have I have friends who reread books multiple times and I think you get something completely different from it if you can make yourself do it but if you are driven by plot then it's very difficult because you're kind of skimming the bits you know Mm. so you don't get anything new so i spoke to kate moss um who obviously she wrote labyrinth and um all those sorts of historical fiction books and she's a massive fan of wuthering heights it's like one of her favorite books and she did this uh, we're talking about anthologies earlier she edited this anthology um inspired by wuthering heights um, which is really, really interesting. Some really weird stories in there. Like the range of the stories is great. Um, and she was saying, she had an interview that she rereads it like every decade of her life. So she's read it um, in her teens. She's read it in her 20s. She's read it in her 30s. She's read it in her 40s. And each time there's something different in it. And I find it really interesting, the idea of kind of setting this this book and rereading it every decade of your life. And when she told me about this, I'm not the kind of person that does this and rereads books, but it, it did make me curious as an experiment to pick a book and, and do that with it. And then kind of, um, document the process. Yeah. And also I think as a reflection of how much you personally have evolved, whether it's through your reading habits or who you are as a person, if there was a book that was, you know, uh, your favorite favorite book as the 16 year old if you go back and read that would those words still resonate with you or you know have you uh, grown so much since that it, it's a nice reminder of who you were but um, you know as a reflection of yourself it's an interesting comparison yeah and then you think which book would you choose to read every 10 years because if I'd chosen a book at the age of 17 it you know, I, I might not want to read that again every 10 years. Is this the part where the McDonald's ads come in and the shawarma ad and everything like that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the sponsors. <laughs> oh, no, now yes. you've made me really want a shawarma. <laughs> what? It's like nine in the morning. Yeah. Oh, it's 10. Yeah, it's it's not never a, not a good time. No, t- 10, o- 10 o'clock onwards is shawarma clock. Before that is falafel. That's it for now. Thank you all for tuning in. And it's really awesome having you on the episode today, Saeed. 
Take a look at the show notes for the details of the books we've talked about today and let us know what you think. Who is your favorite author from the Middle East? Let us know in the comments below. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a rating, send us an email or a carrier pigeon if you prefer. We love hearing from you. Please get in touch and until next time, take care. Speak soon. Bye.